This episode of the Last King Podcast, we'll be talking about 1917 as we go on the road to the Academy Awards. Also, some talk about Roger Deakins. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Last King Podcast. I am, of course, your host, uh, Lance Corporal Shafik, along with... Lance Corporal Dustin. And special guest... Private Ruben over here, reporting Private. in for duty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll be talking about 1917, a film that came out kind of technically last year, but we only managed to catch it here in Singapore January 2nd when it was first released, right? And um, wow, it's been getting quite a lot of buzz. It is also the return of the collaborations between Sam Mendes and Mr. Roger Deakins, who we shall expound on a little bit because we've got nothing but Deakins worship here. And uh, we're also going to be reviewing the film, so uh, be prepared. This will be a spoilerific kind of review. Uh, please pay attention to the time codes when we will start spoiling. So you have been warned, but still, watch the movie, okay? It's already won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. Any surprises, boys? Well, you know, I found out that at the end of the First World War, the Allies won, so that kind of ruined it for me. <laughs> No spoilers here on The Last King Podcast. Uh, 1917, not only a war film, a man on a mission movie is a bit of a passion project for Mr. Sam Mendes because it took him a little bit of having to do a few James Bond movies before he could finally get this off the ground. And I think he's kind of entering that director's pantheon of like, you gotta do the war movie. And the thing is, he's done it twice. He's done Jarhead, which I felt was pretty exceptional. But also with Deacons. Also with Deacons. I mean, oh, that shot of the oil fields on fire. Mm. And Thomas Newman on the soundtrack as well. Mm. Yeah, no, I would say this also. Uh, Jarhead has probably one of the best uh, licensed music moments ever when they had uh, something in the way by Nirvana playing That's over right. the lonely man in the toilet scene. <laughs> That's right. So to speak, uh, some of the best masturbation I've seen caught on film. Roger Deacons, you masterful, masterful motherfucker. How about this? We're going to do a quick round the table. I want to hear general impressions of the film. And uh, let's start over with uh, the one guy I know who religiously subscribes to American cinematographer here. Uh, Mr. Dustin, uh, general impression, sir. When you hear a one-take film, you're kind of like, oh, is this going to be one of those gimmick films where it doesn't need one take? And actually, that was Deacon's first impression. When he got the treatment and he said, like, first line, it's supposed to be one take. He's like, oh, God, does it actually need it? And he read the, through the whole thing. He's like, Okay, I can see how this is, you know, going to help. The lack of time compression is a very important part for maintaining the tension and, and a lot of the moments in the film that, that stand out. Mm. How about you, Mr. Rubin, sir? I, I thought, it, you know, before I went, I was thinking, oh, they're gonna... They, are they, like, riding on Wonder Woman or something since they brought, you know, World War One back? And then I, I'm like, what's this World War One film about? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And, 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 and then I, was, I found out that, oh, no, 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 this is a very serious film and, and it, it's got some really good talent on it. And, and then I watched it and I felt, wow, there was no other way. Like what you said, you know, is it a gimmick, you know, to do one take or whatever? And then I was like, no, 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 there was no other way they, could, they should have done it. And what I really uh, felt was special was they took the time to let you see and feel what it's like to really be in a war, you know. And uh, for me, that that really is uh, something that does it for me. Because there are a lot of films where you just, you know, glorify war, or have a lot of action, or they try to make it a comedy. And But this film, it was just about, well, this is war. This is a war 
this is what it looks like. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I totally agree with you on that aspect too because, um, I mean, if you look at war films, especially coming out of Hollywood, right, there is always this need to imbue a sense of patriotism. It's like these characters need to do things above and beyond the call of duty. Okay, shout out to the episode we make fun of the COD boys. But anyway, besides that, <laughs> I would say this also. Uh, I think it's also maybe because it's two British guys, maybe it's Sam Mendes, whose father or grandfather he grandfather. paid tribute to, right? I, I think it helps that it's not Americans and I don't know what it is, but there's something very jingoistic about the way that they portray war. But Especially think, if it's a lesser director. I totally agree with you yeah, on that. Yeah, it, it can be very ham-fisted. And also, I mean, that's one thing when it comes to me reviewing this film, right? I mean, my general overview is I'm totally appreciative of the fact that uh, it's very little politics. It's not melodramatic. It's not trying to have a stance more or less. Yeah, like push because an agenda, right? There's none of that involved at all. And it's, it's a very simple story done in a very complex way. So like for guys like me, when I watch something like 1917, I thoroughly appreciate the fact that uh, the story is very lean, has a, a very strong sense of purpose because nothing in the film is padding. Nothing is unnecessary. Even every single line of dialogue is uh, necessary to the mandate of the flow of the story. And when it comes to the flow of the story, and when it comes to the to the narrative that the, this film is trying to set, boy, uh, the technical achievement in terms of making sure everything happens within the quote-unquote one shot. You know, I mean, we can have we have to call it for what it is. It's not entirely a one-shot film. That exists. We have seen it. It's kind of interesting once. We will be enamored at the technical aspect of it. But also at the same time, you need to have a story. You need something for us to hold on to, you know, characters, motivations, emotions. And I would say 1917 is a perfect marriage of both technical, narrative, and um, I would say it also respects you as an audience member to make up your mind about things. And it presents to you not only, say, a story which is man on a mission. More importantly, it's like, you know, there's so many more stories we can tell with the framework of war. Yeah, there has not been attempted such as. Because, I mean, we can also point to something like Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan, which is, to me, probably when it comes to the marriage of the quintessential man on a mission and the war movie, does it in spades. And my only problem with Saving Private Ryan is, like, everybody only remembers the first 20 minutes. That's right. People kind of forget that the rest of the story happens after that. And it basically funnels down into, I would say, the Man on the Mission movie, you know? Something also along the lines of, say, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, where it's a movie that is extremely bipolar, where at first it, you know, it really hammers in the, the whole desensitization process of trainees going in and preparing, and then in the actual war, how it, war just naturally dehumanizes anyway. So uh, this movie doesn't really tackle, like I would say, heavy-handed subjects such as those. If you were to look at the actor's performance, right, and uh, the young man playing the Lance Corporal McKay, what I loved about his performance especially, right, is he does it mostly with his eyes. And there's a lot of moments where he doesn't even need to say what's going on, but there are several interactions with other people where he just keeps it locked in that, you know, he knows what his action is. He knows that I'm here to deliver a message. Any means necessary, lives are at stake. Help me. I mean, I think that's probably, I would say, the true beauty that is 1917, that at its core, it still remembers the story it's trying to tell, even though it's wrapped in, the, like, Roger Deacon's worship to me, I would say. Because there's a lot of this is, right, I can call to other films like Paths of Glory, I can call to, like, you know, 
Because, I mean, for me, Deacons, everything he does is like, that's pure Kubrick worship right there. Especially when it comes to symmetry, comes to tracking. Jesus Christ. The man is the master of the pan. <laughs> and I can't find any other person who knows how to block the way he does. I mean, Dustin, uh, what are your thoughts on like the camera work and especially the blocking and the technical aspect that is 1917? The camera work is masterful and the blocking and the art direction is uh, a big part of what helps. Because even from the very start when they are starting to go through into no man's land and, and you see them go through barbed wire, like how is the camera going through barbed wire? But you know, the, the blocking, the angle of the barbed wire is set so that you don't see the path for the camera, but when they start walking through barbed wire, the camera has its own path to go through. When they're rushing through the trenches, how is the camera managing to overtake them even though it's so crowded? And when you look at the shot, like, where could the camera have overtaken from? That's a mastery of like the set design, the planning, and the amount of work that they had to do in pre-production and making sure that everything was set up the way it needed to be for them to be able to do this as a series of long takes. Yeah, and especially when it comes to the preparation. I mean, did you see the making of featurette where they actually had to build scale models of the sets themselves? The amount of dedication that goes into that and also I would say like what, four months worth of rehearsals, right? The scale models are the cheap way of finding out before you fly expensive actors and, and set designers, everyone on set. Like before you do the carpentry, do it on a scale model and does it work? And you know, you have you have it on a scale model, you're like, okay, when I'm on a when I'm holding this rig, I can move how many meters per second. This this route is too long for me. I'm gonna die at this point. I can't do a longer route Spoiler, than this. Sir. <laughs> no, 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 I'm gonna die at this point. As in, the camera operator is gonna die at this point. If you make me, the if you make me move died. at this speed, if you make me move at this speed, and and if you want me to run at this speed and hit this mark, I won't be able to do it. And they can do that with the scale models. They can just measure everything out. I mean, not only that, right? They also kind of compensated for that with all those glorious, like, cranes, right? With all the... The techno crane, yeah. And all, like, all the wiring and the rigging, right? I mean, uh, the, the freaking making of featurette in itself is a work of art. Yeah, so even, you know, uh, I was watching that with my wife and she's not, you know, technically inclined or anything. And she was just blown away. Like, as you said, it's a story in itself, you know? Right. But I think that's also... While we may be tempted to say that 1917 has a simple plot, I, I prefer to use another word, clear. Exactly. It is only with clarity that we know decisions were made what to do and what not to do, right? If I've heard of some films where big Hollywood blockbuster types, right, where up to the day on the set, decision was not made and then they are doing rewrites and, and you know, planning the production again. Whereas the good ones like 1917 with a proper pre-production, months ahead and rehearsals, they made decisions and then they went in depth. I think that makes a big difference. I think also the big difference is, right, this is in some aspects a Sam Mendes passion project. And he knew exactly the story he wanted to tell. And it's not something that's supposed to sell merchandise or create a franchise. And I think when you have that amount of, I would say, laser focus, then everything pretty much falls into place. And especially, you know, when it comes to focus, again, Roger Deakins, you know, <laughs> right there. The whole thing was shot in three primes, you know, that blew me away. Like, how does he do the whites? How does he maintain his depth of field? And On then a 35, again, a 40, and a 47mm. When me and Dustin were watching the film, right, it was literally a game of guess the lens. <laughs> we, we were playing two games. It was guess the lens and guess the cut. You know, every time something walks into, like, steps in front of frame, we're like, okay, here's the cut, and they change lens. 
Oh, now it's gonna get dark. Hmm. Yeah, you need a bigger aperture here. Ah, uh, must have been the 40. There were lots of places that we can guess the cut, but I think that for anyone that you know has a background in film and TV, they can guess it. But part of it is also like, where does it make sense to do it? Like, oh, okay, you've just had a really, like what's probably a difficult performance, makes sense to cut there. Or you've just had this big pyrotechnic thing, okay, makes sense to cut there. It, it actually, I mean, I felt from a pacing perspective, it reminded me a lot of a very well-made video game. Wait. It was inspired by, by like, it was, uh, I think Sam Mendes said he was inspired by watching his kids play video Red games. Redemption. Yeah, Red Dead Redemption. Wow, okay. Yeah, he I was did. watching his kids play Red, Red, Red Dead Redemption and he felt like, this is a story that's told in one long take because you constantly follow the, the character. The main characters, right? Yeah, and then things happen as he's on his uh, journey. And it's like, you know, hey, inspiration comes from the weirdest places. You know, I mean, um, Nowadays, especially in the ADD generation, right? And you're trying to tell this story. You have, what I, I found out was that a lot of these guys, like uh, there's this uh, YouTuber, Filmento, he talks about films and all that. And he said like, if you cannot set up your film in 90 seconds, you're on to a rough start. Okay? Depends actually. Yeah, well, but I'm saying that, you know, when I looked at 1917, everything I needed to know about the main characters, I knew in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And everything I needed to know about the mission I knew in the next 60 seconds. Yeah. And that was it. Off you go. Anything else you need to know, you'll find out on the way. And that was brilliant. Again, clarity. I don't even think it's simplicity. I think it's clarity. It's this is it. We are going to be economical with the pros. We're going to go show you what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when you say something like economical, right? And then I only think about that, uh, what the, the town on fire scene. 2001k kilo lights. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. as a person who tried to rent one, <laughs> let alone try to build a rig that required 2,000 of those and then have it dim so that it looks like fire at night. Yeah, dim so that you have the right color temperature to resemble fire. And then again, it's like, this is when we're going to get really nerdy with this because some of these shots are immaculate, sir. And I would say it's like, uh, it's very rare for me to see films nowadays where every film's a painting. I mean, the only other film that came out in 2019 that felt to me like, okay, there's a lot of dedication to the set design was uh, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in America, where it's like, not only did he replicate the scenery, the background, the look, the color, the performances, the language, also the color temperature is like, yeah, this looks like a film shot in the 70s. There's something about it. It has that very vivid technicolor kind of feel to it. And then I'll see something like uh, 1917 and it's like, I mean, even in the color, even in the, the choices in, the, in their hues, you know, and it's like how it basically plays into the emotion of the stories because everything in the beginning starts off with a very nice, natural, neutral green. And then when it comes towards like the hardest parts, okay, it gets a little bit more blue. So it becomes a bit more somber, a bit more melancholy, right? And then when it comes to when the shit hits the fan and it's like nothing but fiery reds and oranges, right? Eases you back in into the, those calm, serene blues, especially during that, that later scene before the moment everybody's going to be talking about, especially in this film. I don't know if it's purely Deacons because it's, as much as I just want to like, you know, worship the man forever, right? And he's done like some things that to this day, I cannot believe like, how is this man not more appreciated? You know How has he mean? only won one Academy Award for cinematography? Does this guy only have one Oscar? I was shocked I mean? about that. I mean, which one did he win for, by the way? Blade Runner. Blade Runner, right? I didn't like that movie. <laughs> 
Love the cinematography. The though. cinematography is great, but like yeah, movie-wise structure, yeah. But cinematography, you can't deny like the the canvas he was given to paint with it. Not only that, I mean, it felt to me like this is a guy who knew that okay, Ridley Scott kind of set the bar with uh, the original Blade Runner. Yes, you know, and the thing is, right when you look at Blade Runner and you look at every other movie before that, even the likes of like Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, which is supposedly set in the future, right, still had this kind of retro future feel to it. It's like watching Star Trek, and like they still have no idea what the future looks like. Oh, that's cute. You think that's what the future looks like? <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, cool, man. Like, oh, when Dr. Spock decides to beam people aboard, oh, look, a flip phone. You know, there's something a little bit aged about it, right? But you see something like Blade Runner and you think to yourself, it's like, yeah, 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 we still can't achieve this future. Also, I would give props to uh, Denis Villeneuve, who basically, like, I don't know if he let Deacons run with it. Because I know when it comes to the cinematography, right, it's between you, the set designer, the production designer, the art director, the costume guy. Because it's all these little machinations that has to kind of work not only in tandem but you know synergize in concert, yeah. Yeah, and like a war movie and everything shot in camera. I mean, there's very we, little. We, CGI, we right? waited for the credits because we were like, how many effects houses are we going to see? One, one. We saw one, and it's basically cleanup. And it's basically I can think like the only scene I can think of where the CGI is a little bit uh, prevalent, right? Is definitely the river scene. Mm. Yeah, there's one shot where like yeah that's where it stitched it and it didn't ruin the film for me at all because sometimes when you notice uh, things like that when it breaks the uncanny valley then it's like okay I'm out of the picture but no I mean you invest just the river in the scene and the night scene I think the, they, there was a lot of cleanup on the night scene as well yeah definitely I think they had to go and like composite the flames in right I don't think it was actually on fire. I think they did what they did with Jarhead, where it's basically it's a lighting rig, and then we need to kind of like. It's CGI. a lighting rig, and this light source is kind of like embellished at this point. Yeah, I mean, especially with a script this laser focused, everything had to be laser focused. That's right. And then there's also moments like I mean, if we also throw back to the the making of featurette, right? I mean, one of the, the cutest things ever is like, oh yeah, I'm gonna shoot this all in natural light, so it has to be the perfect kind of cloudy day. And there's like scenes where they're just sitting on the field waiting for the clouds to come. And you think to yourself, right, well, any lesser director is like, no, nope, I'm just going to shoot it. We're going to make it night for day or whatsoever. No, no, we'll wait. We'll wait. We know exactly the color and the kind of shots we want. And I don't know. I mean, like for you, uh, Ruben, right, when you see something like that, do you think to yourself like this is a little bit, I don't know, uh, obnoxious or a little bit too indulgent? Or do you feel like this is all something that's extremely necessary to telling a story? I, I think it depends on what's the story being told and does it actually improve the, 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 the perception of the audience, the, the, the way that they are receiving this story, message or character, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I've seen some films where they go, oh, you know, we could do this, you know, we could do that. And, and this is where I always call them the barbers that don't know when to stop cutting their hair. You know, nice you just end up bald. Right, <laughs> I didn't want to fade. There yeah. you go. Yeah, you know, you know, we could do a fade, and then you know, we could chop this and chop that, and next thing you know, you got no more hair, right? Um, where, whereas, if if you're trying to make a certain statement, a certain kind of thing, and I feel that 1917 is is it's over 100 years ago. It's a world that we don't understand. We don't know or live in it. It's stuff that we just can't reference, you know? Yeah, I would say World War One is not as documented as something like World War Two or Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, the media wasn't as prevalent. Photos, you know, not, not that many, right? Yeah, true that. I mean, 
yeah, so you got to kind of find a way to put the audience there. And I, I remember Deacons was talking about this in, in one of his interviews. He said, you know, some people like to have cameras with patina. I don't know what that means even, but but basically it was like, no, I want the clearest image because I want the, the audience to feel they're not, they're, they're not watching a movie. They are there. They're seeing what I'm seeing. He said that. And when I, when I heard that, I was like, I get what you're trying to do. I get it. So when he goes and tries to find the perfect cloud, yeah. it's because he wants to make sure that everyone really would feel the way he felt or, or see what he, he's trying to, to show. You're right there. I think that's what he's aiming for. I mean, you also have to uh, kind of take note of the fact that Deacon started out as a documentary filmmaker. Uh, and then he kind of moved on to more uh, esoteric stuff because he did also music videos for a time. Uh, I can't remember uh, like off the top of my head. Uh, but then when he started doing films, I mean, like... Uh, I don't know, like 1984 was yes. him as well, him, right? Him, him, him. And I think it was there. He likes doing he likes doing year movies. He likes doing yeah. 1917 is the prequel to 1984. Exactly. Okay, you know, part of the 2094 Blade Runner trilogy. What? How many more dates can we do? Right? <laughs> uh, but uh, when it comes to his style, right? I mean, one thing I also totally appreciate about Deacons, right? He is a man who is also in step with technology. And he is always there on the bleeding edge because it's like uh, one film that I thoroughly worship and it's not so much about the camera work but more what he did with colour grading was uh, Oh Brother Without Thou. And it's like, you know, back in the day, right, the only way to achieve that look, right, especially if you were shooting on film was this technique called cross-processing where you wanted like, you know, the, the purples or the greens to kind of go in different directions, right, to kind of give it a more... I wouldn't say hallucinogenic because like for Oh Brother Where Out Now, he wanted the yellows to really be pumped out because he wanted that kind of nostalgic sepia tone, you know, but also at the same time retain the blues and retain the greens. So it doesn't look like washed out with one color, you know. But and then you see something like 1917, right? There is a very distinct, I would say, color palette there. And it's so tasteful. You know, and that's one thing I love about Deacons because he's so much of the kind of guy where it's like only what is necessary. Say Blade Runner 2049. To me, that is the opposite of his just thought because it's like, go nuts. Yeah, the scene where he meets Wallace, right? And it's like, here's a room, here's water, here's sun. Make it beautiful. <laughs> you know, I love, you know, like when they interviewed, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the actress, right? I think, um, like they asked her basically, so what's it like working with Roger Deakins? Oh, he's a he's a he's such a humble rock star. He's like a member of the Rolling Stones. It's like the director will go up to him like that is the most beautiful shot I've ever seen. And Deakins will be the kind of guy like yeah yeah it's good. <laughs> he's that kind of guy. He's just such a badass. You know what I mean? He'd rather show than than speak. Yeah, it's it's in the work. You know, I totally respect a guy who can uh, like you know run along the trenches of mud in like cowboy boots like, dude, <laughs> you're the man, sir. Yeah, I mean some of the shots in. Uh... Uh, 1917 I, I felt like I was looking at a live watercolour classic watercolour painting exactly every frame of that painting. kind of you know beauty you know but I think we also have to give Mendes credit because his theatre background puts him in an ideal position to be able to do something like this because theatre is where you have to do everything one take mm. and if you have to obscure the set changes or whatever you do it with darkness and things like that so you know the orchestration needed to yes. direct something like this comes easier for a person that understands theatre. I don't know, I mean like, what are your thoughts on Sam Mendes in general, like his previous works? Well, it's a mix for me, right? Um, a lot of my friends never did not like Jarhead. I love Jarhead. I like Jarhead a lot. Yeah. You know, it's, like not, it's not your rah-rah kind of war film, you know? And 
it has what I call the European ending where there's no resolution kind of ending. It's just this is the end of the of the story. That's it. Yeah. Going going back to what we're talking about, right? Which is like why why does World War Two have such uh, so much more coverage? Because Americans, well, Americans were involved. Because right? <laughs> we we actually that's why, that's, why no one, that's why no one gives a shit about World War One. We weren't there. That was like yeah before before we entered the franchise. Right? Before we entered the franchise. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so it's not canon, right? Yeah, and then I love Sicario, right? And then there's there's what that's one of my favorite shots of all time is the yeah, highway the, shot. The highway, right? And then that was because of Dust, Dustin introduced me to to the film. Anyway. Oh really? Yeah, that, that's a that's. But a were fact. you aware of Deacons, or you're just aware of the, the director? It just turns out that I like films like Shawshank and all that. I just didn't know anything. <laughs> I didn't know anything about the guys who are behind the camera or anything oh, like see. that. Yeah. So you're, what you're about the Last King podcast? We're gonna educate you on all these kind a of things. A little bit, yeah, yeah. But then I mean, like you look at Sam and Des, right? Okay, so. Skyfall, I enjoyed a lot, but then Spectre, I thought was a piece of shit. Hmm. I mean, I think and oh, American oh, Beauty for its time was also doing interesting things. Yeah, but I, I didn't like gorgeous. that film. That's the thing. I didn't like that film. Rewatch it. It's actually okay. the kind of film, right? When you watched it, when it came out fresh, like we were probably in our twenties, we can't relate to it. Yeah, maybe watch too it young, now. Right? Yeah, watch it now, and when you hear Kevin Spacey drop the line, "I want to look good naked," like I know exactly how you feel, sir. Okay. <laughs> okay. Revealing. Oh my God. This is getting a bit revealing, just as you... Keeping it honest and brutal here on the Last Game Podcast, boys yeah. and girls. <laughs> I would say this, uh, I mean, like, but I mean, now that you've um, become more aware of it, I mean, like, and you look back at his filmography, I mean, like, what was, what to you is your quintessential Deacon's moment? Oh, well, for me, again, because of Jarhead, I like the, when it's raining oil and the horse, you know, comes yeah. up to the guy. For for me that that kind of thing, that I know symbology, it's, right? Yeah, right. I know it's it's a little anticlimactic or whatever, but to me it's like that's like that's the moment where you go, you know what? You could be a damn horse, you can't escape this war, and it's gonna go past you so fast. Because you know the theme in Jahid was the war is so fast, we're just swept up in it. The air force is gonna bomb everything, and then you know we don't have anything, and then the horse comes up, he's covered in oil, you're covered in oil, the whole place is is you know on fire and 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 it's dark. And you're in this goddamn desert. And you can't go anywhere. That's it. You know? And I think the fact that there's no dialogue that is just that, and the visuals tell you everything you need to know. Now that, to me, is mastery. That's brilliant. Yeah, I would also kind of give more... I mean, credit also to Sam Mendes for that. I think Jarhead, especially from the point of view of a non-American, was very interesting for me. Even, like, other films that uh, kind of depicted the Gulf War, right? The only thing that comes to mind for me that... I felt was equally engaging and entertaining would be something like Three Kings. Yeah, yeah. You know, and everything else after that, like even like Black Hawk Down, which is technically not a Gulf War fl- no, flick, right? No. And, and it's also strange because it's like it was directed by which Scott Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, right? And it's like there's something about when it's the eye of a person outside of the nation, and it provides a perspective on the more horrific elements of it, even for all its. Uh, I would say melodramatic trappings, right? Even Saving Private Ryan had a kind of a hoorah, bombastic, patriotic, like especially with the tacton ending where they show all the veterans. Yeah. yeah. And also props to Spielberg for probably depicting like, you know, Normandy, the, the, the beach landing in a way that, okay, no, nobody till that day has seen war so visceral and so gruesome and so violent. It was basically so visceral that that was a, a staple during national service when you were called military conscripts you're like yeah you see this is why you need to wear a helmet then they'll show you the scene where the guy gets shot <laughs> yeah, in the head his head blown up yeah, yeah, yeah. so basically like props to uh, Spielberg for giving military sergeants everywhere in the world something <laughs> to horrify recruits with 
No, not only that, let's also give props to uh, Steven Spielberg and Saving Private Ryan for launching four video game franchises, That's right. which everyone had to depict their, no- their version of Normandy, which is your Call of Duty, which is your Medal of Honor, and what have you, and what so forth. Maybe another discussion I want to have with you guys is where does this stack in the pantheon of other war films? Because when it comes to the war movie, um, I mean, it's been, I wouldn't say done to death, but it's been done several different ways. And you got some aspects where we're pushing towards, let's concentrate on the humanity of war. Let's see it from the point of view of, you know, something like Platoon to me, I would say is one of the greatest war films of all time. Because when it comes to like dehumanization, when it comes to uh, the horrors of war and also what it is that we are capable of, you know, nothing to me can beat Platoon in terms of, I would say, just sheer impact in its imagery and how it still shocks me to this day. And the only other film that can top that is uh, this Russian film, Come as you, uh, Come and See, which is very hard to find, but thank you, YouTube, because it's out there. You can see the whole is thing. Is that right? Yep. The entire film. Uh, subtitles and all? Subtitles and all. I think it's part of the, the Russian film archive. They have this YouTube channel. Oh, that's brilliant. And they even have like, you no know, Tarkovsky films like Stalker. Really? And it's like, you know what? If you can't afford DVD or if you can't find it elsewhere, okay, links in the description, boys. I don't know, for me, 1917 does a lot and it does a lot well. But when it comes to entering the Pantheon, like the greatest of all time, I still say I can still name 10 other movies better. It's definitely top 20 for me because it's displaced quite a few other movies. I'm also a fan of uh, things like, you know, Grave of the Fireflies, an anime which is beautifully done. Uh, It depicts the horrors of Hiroshima through the eyes of a, a young boy and it's all about survival. And for me, when it comes to the taste of the war film, right, I am more akin to kind of leaning towards uh, something that depicts the human element. And something like 1917, right, I wouldn't say it's not a war film, but I would definitely place it in this other subgenre of the man on the mission. Like, it's way better than Dirty Dozen. It's kind of slightly better than Saving Private Ryan because of how lean it is. But how about you guys? You know, like when it comes to other war films, right, what tops it or what doesn't it top? The idea of considering something a war film, it implies certain things, which is like what defines a war film, yeah, that's right? The, that's I, think, I think the war is the setting. I don't think the war is the genre per se. Yeah. So It doesn't I, even need to be set in the war because like I would say something like Born on the 4th of July is a good war film itself. I would say that from a genre perspective, it's more man on a mission as opposed to calling it a war genre film. It's just war as the setting. Yeah. What I appreciated about it was that it's very economical and one of the early scenes where the art direction plays a big part where they're crawling through motor craters and the motor crater has blown limbs are part of the, the motif. A dead horse is one of the first few things you see and you see the flies all over it. And this is how you really ratchet into the detail that war is shit. And even down to parts where just go straight 100 meters, <laughs> turn right at the bowing chap and using them as landmarks like they do in Everest. Yeah, people are dehumanized to the point that they're using corpses as landmarks for directions. I mean, not only that, but there's also a sense of like, I would say like even something like Jarhead would say, or like even Saving Private Ryan, like the term FUBAR. Mm. Like this is this is the shit, welcome to the suck. Yeah, welcome to the suck. You know? um, I, I think also with respect to war film, or actually any film, right? The, the ones that end up being great where we really get invested is when we know a lot or empathize with the character. Like, why I love Shawshank is because, you know, this guy 
I know so much about him, how he ended up here, what he goes through every single day, trying to avoid the prison rape and all that. <laughs> and Try and it. yeah, <laughs> and you feel it, right? Whereas, like, uh, you know, if you don't know about the character, where they are from, what their motivation, sometimes this works. Like, if you're dealing with the Joker in Batman, right? Yeah. Not knowing where he's from adds a lot. Mm. But then, if it's something where you want to get people to invest, then you kind of need to give more. And and I think that there are other war films where there's a lot more opportunity to invest in the character. You know, where you you really can feel a lot. Like I mean, for me, uh, like you brought up Black Hawk Down, right? Being Rara, I agree with you. But let me tell you why it's in one of my top tens. Mm -hmm. It's because of the letter they read at the end. Mm. It it really made me feel something very different you know because you know like there was one part where you know he called home and the answering machine the wife just missed him things like that right and then at the end she gets his letter he wrote down what he was trying to say to her i mean this is a very human experience you're you're trying to reach out to someone and 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 it just happens that this happened in a war mm. you know so there's a certain degree of finality to it and so you invest emotionally you invest because I was actually thinking a lot about 1917, such a great film to me, visually, accurately, you know, everything. And, and, and yet, you're right, I struggle to say it's number one. Maybe it makes my top ten, I, I, I don't have as big a list of films as you, but I don't put it at number one, I don't put it at number two, yeah. I don't put it at number three. Dunkirk, same thing. Because you know what? War is not a character, war is not a person, war is a thing. Mm-hmm. It's the framework. It's, it's basically it's, telling the story as, about As it. Dustin said, right? It's, it's that setting, right? Yeah. But who am I investing in? Mm. That is the question. And then I start to think, oh, my mind drifts to maybe Hex or Rich. A little, you know, yes, I know, very overt in its themes. Mm. But character, ah, that draws me in a lot. For me, Hex or Rich, my only problem with it is that it's a bit schmaltzy at the end. It has it is. a very Hollywood ending. And I know it's based on a true story and a lot of those situations did happen. Also the fact I didn't really like Andrew Garfield. I'm not a fan. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's not a bias whatsoever. Okay. I think the kid did a great job. But in the scene when he's like dragging Vince Vaughn and Vince Vaughn is like firing that machine gun, I'm like, okay, this is kind of goofy. Could you have shot this a little bit less, you know? But the thing is, it actually, ha that's the, you know, like yeah, when, he, you know when he flying kicked the grenade or something, I'm like, what? <laughs> And then later I go read Wikipedia and like, oh, that actually happened. I'm like, what? Double what, right? But then also at the same time, uh, can we really trust Wikipedia in this day and age? Hmm? Okay, <laughs> okay. So so maybe the Trump Brigade was behind that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, uh, I'm just happy Hexor Ridge exists because, oh, hey, Mel Gibson's directing again. It's nice to see him come out of kind of retirement. Though I would say, I don't know. I still want Braveheart too. But I think that's the one thing I also want to discuss about 1917. Because it's so lean, right? And I also say this, right, because we're fresh from the theatres, we've all just seen this and its impact is still kind of resonant amongst us. I don't know if this is the kind of movie that maybe if you watch it five years, ten years from now, because once we get over the gimmick of the one shot, at its core, is there still a story underneath all of it that I can care about? When I would compare it to, say, other Men on a Mission movies or other war movies, right, there's always that fear of, like, did I like it because it was such a bombastic experience, you know? And like, can I truly say this is better than something like Apocalypse Now? Which unfortunately, I don't think so. I think part of it as well is that we're like, we're just so happy to see an original film that's Oh god damn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly yeah. that yeah. too. So, so part, of, part of me is like, how much are we basking in the glow of its original IP? 
it's not something that's going to be that's how make, I felt if about they make it. if they make a sequel oh fuck that shit what you are we going to do 1918 yeah 1918 <laughs> right like, World War 2 like, <laughs> 1945 we have enough of those okay then I would say maybe starting from now we shall be entering spoiler territory because we're going to discuss the film in all its extent unless there's other points and topics you guys want to kind of bring up at this point of time no, I think I think let's let's go straight into spoiler territory because I think we're kind of like going with the handbrake on because we just don't want to spoil stuff and all that spoil. Yeah, we're kind of edging our way towards a lot of this film. And okay, if you haven't seen 1917 at this point of time, do us a favor: don't stop the podcast, pause it, go watch it, come back and play it again because those two plays count towards our analytics. Yeah, I'm just being brutally honest here. I want to hear have all the plays, but also at the same time. I urge you guys, if you haven't seen 1917, and if you're all wondering what the hype is all about, we're going to discuss it in full detail very soon. So, spoiler warning in 3, 2, 1. Spoilers start now. Boys, what was that one moment you thought to yourself, oh my god, this is a cinematic masterpiece? It's going to be very difficult to pick between the two. Yeah. And one of them I know is yours, so I'm going to leave that to you. The one for me was... Uh, the flares after he woke up from being knocked out because that totally reminded me of Blade Runner the moving lights and the shadows the moving lights but the thing about it is that it's really really hard to do especially when you've got such a tall structure you've got these shadows you're doing it one shot the difficulty of getting flares to illuminate what you need Mm. and then it goes to darkness and then you have another flare you have to coordinate all your light sources your light sources are moving and you see the behind the behind the scenes they had it on lines right because they they didn't want it to like go off target right yeah that's right they had it on lines and also they had the scale models and they were simulating it with the scale models to say okay do we have enough light for the part where he runs from here to here okay we need to add another flare here we just tweak the timing of this the planning required to get it right was amazing I mean I think if anything right 1917 is definitely uh, if you're a cinematography nerd right <laughs> yeah there's a lot to unpack study analyze and worship here uh, but how about you Ruben what was your big moment for the film okay and it's spoiler free yeah yeah so for me it's it's when he you know he wakes up on the stream on the river mm-hmm. you know and then he, he climbs over these dead bodies and then he comes to the clearing and there's all these guys just and the guys start singing and the guys singing right yeah. I know it sounds cheesy but but for me right the way he because he he was escaping right yeah. and, and they bring him into this serene place and then you're trying to adjust you're trying to adjust you're, you're catching up your head is still somewhere else and then you're catching up here and then the way you're being brought in and then from that wide you know stream kind of landscape kind of view and then you're going in closer closer to be one of the boys one of those guys yeah. who he are rejoined now, civilization yeah. yeah but no not to rejoin civilization here's the spot you know that you then find out to your horror that these boys are going to go back into the suck <laughs> they, they're not they're you know he, he left the suck to come to Serenity I'm looking for these guys we're those guys we're those guys <laughs> and, he, and, and then he realizes that there's a whole other thing he has to get through or these guys, these guys, these, these guys are the these guys are the second round. First round win already, guys. Yeah, and these guys are going to die if he doesn't do it. Yeah. So, and again, we talked about the clarity of plot, right? Yeah. Every moment in this film is push the plot. Yeah. So you see, he gets there, beautiful. He's trying to breathe. He's catching it, and then we are the guys, and he's like, "You're gonna be the dead guys." Yeah. You can see again. He didn't say a word, right? Yeah. It's in his eyes. Mm. My. God, that moment for me, for me was 
Wow. I mean, I'll definitely give shoutouts to uh, the actor, Mr. McKay himself, because yeah. I mean, I am not aware of his other work, but I, mean, I think Sam Mendes deliberately, like, we deliberately wanted an unknown. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess. Well, he's he's known now because, because if you put anyone larger than life, there you're like. That's I mean, Tom like, Cruise. The, like other, that's, the other that's, guy that's Ryan was uh, Dean Charles Chapman. He was Billy Elliot, right? If I'm not mistaken, the mm. the the other Lance Corporal who died. Yeah. He played. He, he's also known from Game of Thrones, right? Was no, he? Wait. Oh yeah, he was right. He's yeah, he yeah. was Tommen or something. Tommen, right? Tommen, yeah. Hmm. I mean, like, I, th- I thoroughly agree with you. And then one thing I also want to kind of uh, unpack also, right, is the pacing of the film. It felt so lean, but how is it that he manages to inject all this action and all this suspense? And then we kind of understood like the dynamics of this is very akin to like a horror movie. It has very strong horror movie beats and it's not the kind of cheesy jump scare horror movie beat it's the kind of like you know uh, before we can you know I would say overwhelm you with all of this right let us turn the volume down let's relax a bit let's go talk to the French girl for a little bit and play with the little kid and then remind you oh yeah there are fucking Nazis out there waiting to shoot you and they all have stormtrooper aim so I don't know yeah 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 okay they were not Nazis I'm sorry what, what were the they called the what the Bosch let's call them the Bosch yeah, yeah. the reason yeah. you're okay with all of these uh, relaxed beats or beats where it's intense and then yeah. it, there's a there's a release right the reason you're okay with the release is because it's in real time normally you'd be like don't you know there's a war on you start tapping your watch there's a deadline you, you gotta get these guys why are you talking to a French girl and feeding a baby right exactly but you've just seen the shit that he's gone through in real time, I just got shot by a sniper, motherfucker. I need to take a break. Almost right. drowning from sleeping in a river. Motherfucker, you just ran away from how many fucking stormtroopers, right? Yeah. Like, you need a break. So you're okay with that because of the real time aesthetic. You know, I was. Uh, this reminds me a bit about the, the guys from Half-Life 2. They were talking about how they design the levels. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that what they often do is that, you know, they'll get you to, so you journey to the arena then they kind of close something behind you and you know you can't go back standard FPS game thing right yeah. but they don't start the shit immediately they let you explore the space yeah and it doesn't have the trappings of the this is a, a boss room because here's all these health packs that's right it's literally like oh look the lights are on and something jumps at you yeah and then they activate the, the stimulus to push the plot yeah right so so it gives you the break you learn about the world a little you mm. learn about the environment because you're going to have to fight in it yeah. and then you know so so i think that's why i keep saying like this this film reminds me of a really well-built game yeah. that has a it story was inspired by a video game which is very story driven too and yeah. the one of the best examples of this is actually the the lieutenant that takes over that sends him over the trenches right it's like okay Please throw back the flare when you're done because you know I hate I hate I hate leaving these to the hunt. Yeah, and like, yeah, you know, yeah. sprinkling whiskey on them. Yes, father for all your sins, everything. And like that guy was the perfect setup, but it did not feel like cheap exposition. No, he felt like a yeah. MP, like a good NPC, a really well built NPC. Exactly. Right? Like you no, know, because like I would say it's also uh, I won't say foreshadowing. Uh, it was more along the lines of like, okay, let's build up the audience expectations a little bit, and also. I would say like like any good video game, right? Let's teach you the level before you explore the level. So he's exp- explaining to you, this is the path you have to take. Through the barbed wire, past the dead horse, watch out for the craters, they're full of holes. And then you already have that mental image locked in your head. And goddamn, that shot when the camera goes over the water without creating any ripples, right? What, wires again, right? Or was it a techno crane? Techno crane. Techno crane, right? I need a techno crane. 
Not 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 for anything, just to own one, you know. Just to have one. <laughs> yeah, it seems so useful. You don't have a big enough house. I don't have a big enough chair too. You can't sit on one anymore, right? Or can you? You can, right? They normally do remote hits these days. Ah oh, man, I want to be like freaking uh, Steven Spielberg on the set of like 1940 whatever. Where he's sitting on the camera like the side chair. <laughs> I've I've been I've been on a shoot with that before. Not worth it. Uh, it's not worth it when you almost crash into the ceiling of the <laughs> short house that you're shooting at. Okay, that's not not. I want to have like my Francis Ford Coppola moment. No, you're in my scene. Get the fuck out. <laughs> uh, but I will say this also. Uh, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the storytelling, right? I mean. We can definitely explore it from its, uh, I would say, like a video game, right? You can see that it has set-piece design, you know what I mean? And the thing is, it's, it's a very gradual escalation, like it's a perfect sine wave every single time. Because the moment it allows you to just release and to just take a breath, like even those scenes, right, those quieter scenes, right, and like a lesser director would have made them unnecessarily like, you know, like, oh, let us remind you about the horrors of war. Here's a victim of the war or here's somebody suffering from it, right? But no, it's like basically also the framing. Like one of my favorite scenes is when he uh, gets on the truck with the, all the other guys. And they're all like talking, banter, like, yeah. you know, body humor. And he just lost his friend and he's, his eyes are just like... Oh. Uh, That's right. And not only that, right, because uh, in terms of blocking, right, and I don't know how they did it. Because once he gets on the truck, right, and the camera goes behind, uh, uh, I think the soldier who was doing the impersonation, and then you see how all, and this is why I love Deacon so much, because when it comes to the pan and when it comes to having elements in frame, right, when all the other actors kind of like, you know, form some sort of a frame around him. And it's just his face looking like, you know, upwards. That we empathize, I empathize a lot with yeah. because, you know, there are some moments where you're feeling so down. Yeah. Even in a crowd, you feel alone. Yes. And I think we all understand that. And I think that's one of those like genius moments where it's like, you know, you're supposed to feel safe in this kind of environment. Here you are with your peers. Here you are probably in a lorry and your journey is going to be a lot shorter than you think. And then all of a sudden, boom. Oh, we're stuck. Fuck. Oh, the bridge is out. Okay, you're walking the rest of the way. And then Mark Strong, your boy. Yeah, that's my boy. That's my boy. <laughs> he comes out and you're like, good luck, lad. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, all right. Not just good luck, lad, but giving him more character uh, development, which is, by the way, make sure they're witnesses, you know? Because fucking Benedict Cumberbatch doesn't listen sometimes, right? <laughs> because some men just won the fight. Some that was the quote. I love that line, right? Some men just won the fight. Yeah. You know? And, and funny thing is, my wife agreed to go for the film because she thought this was a Cumberbatch film. <laughs> you know, sly you know, sir. You know what? <laughs> no, no. It's, you know how I convinced her to see Deadpool? I told her, and was the first Deadpool was around uh, Valentine's Day, right? I yeah, said, let's yeah. go see. It's a romantic comedy about a guy with cancer. It's a romantic comedy. It's a guy with cancer trying to get back to his wife. And she was like, oh, that sounds sweet. And oh, then, was it by Nicholas Sparks? And then the opening scene, it's like, you know, some jackass director, some deadbeat, I whatever. Can imagine her and she's glaring like, at you. No, like, no, no, she wasn't pissed. Just the thing, she wasn't pissed. Okay. She wasn't pissed, but she knew that I'd hoodwinked her into one, you know. All right, what have you got me into this time? Yeah, right? yeah. Did yeah, you have to yeah. do the payback movie after that? No, 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 not at all. She enjoyed it. She enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, okay. she did. But, you know, she <laughs> after that, she knew, don't trust my, my synopsis. You know, it's going to be bullshit. Well, you weren't lying. Technically, it is kind of a romantic comedy. I they, they, they even did a trailer as if it was a romantic comedy. I yes. enjoyed it. Yes. In the movie post and everything. God damn it, I'm so upset that Deadpool 3 is going to happen. It's not going to be done by Fox people. 
mm, Disney promises is going to be a little bit more accessible. Why? Oh, you no. have no idea oh, what Deadpool is no. about. Go, no, don't they have enough PG-13 bullshit already? Look, it's all about pushing product. It's not about good stories or interesting so characters. So I guess that's, that's going to end our hopes to ever get the Deadpool jockstrap, right? Yep. Okay. Speaking of jockstraps, speaking of the suck. Yeah. Okay, so 1917. <laughs> Lovely tangent there, boys. So, is this a perfect date movie? <laughs> You brought your wives. How were their reactions? She kind of enjoyed it, right? No, no, she she loved it. Really? She loved it. She, again, like me, we she liked how it wasn't just oh look, let's blow shit up, let's shoot people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, I I get it, stormtrooper aim and everything. Yeah. But while some look at the aim, she was looking at the run, like how he will do anything to complete this mission. Like yeah. you know, you know, his buddy passed on, and it's just him. And if he doesn't do and it, he was reluctant at first. Yeah, he didn't want. He was like, he "Why was are you the so guy stupid?" Who was picked, right? It's okay, manifest so it, destiny or something. My, my, my bad. I got a earlier on. I said thirty seconds. You know about these guys, right? Yeah. So you have the 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 Blake. Blake is the one who who would just say yes to anything. He's the guy. He's got you know. When he's you, happy you, go you, lucky. You go with a party, right? Yeah. You go like, you know, we're gonna go see some transvestite whatever bar, and he's like, "Yes, let's do that." He's the guy. He will say yes. to I know anything. people just like that. Yeah. And then you know this other guy is the guy who's going like, come on, let's let's go. And he's like, dude, it's ten here. o'clock. We just got here, right? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, let's go. This place sucks. So in thirty seconds, just the two of them conversing about this. You know the friendship straight away. Immediately, you There's know the dynamic. That's why I mean economical, right? Then yeah. you go in, and then you know Colin Firth again, again. What the hell? He just in one minute he sets them up, and then yeah. they're on their merry way. You know this is this is the kind of thing. So again, he dies, Blake dies. Sorry, and then. You're leaving. Which you're is leaving amazing her. dynamics to me because yeah. that is definitely the, the 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 plunger emotional impetus. Shit starts now. Yeah, basically at the point that he gets stabbed, and you see when they're dragging the pilot out, right? You see the dagger dangling there. Like you should probably take that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think you're confiscating that? Shit? First thing, like take that, that take the dagger away, and he's like, go get him water. That's that's wrong priority. Bad idea. Then you see how dirty the water is. It's like, oh no, stop. It's like, oh, has he seen the water from over there? No, he's getting stabbed. Oh, I've been stabbed, I've been stabbed. And I think it's also, I mean, clever filmmaking, right? Where you remove the comic relief. I mean, uh, these two actors, not exceptional performances, but definitely they did what they needed to do. For the role. For the role. They knew exactly what they had to pull so off. So the one thing that made me go, like kind of suspend my thinking or whatever yeah. right? my, my immersion at that moment the stabbing right was this how come this guy who was so reluctant to go on the mission has now flipped on a dime mm-hmm. it cannot be just because this guy died yeah. why it, and then I realised that was the moment it hit me I know nothing about this guy you see I know Blake has a brother mm-hmm. I know that they like the cherry trees and all that I got that so he's like an organic guy. He's you know growing stuff and and he's into yes. Let's be positive. He's that guy. I know nothing about Schofield. Yeah, because Schofield is definitely he is the vessel for us. The only thing you know about Schofield at that point was that when he was walking through the trenches or when he was walking through the tunnel, he looked at the picture uh, that was stuck to the bunk of a woman that's it that's all the German soldiers right yeah. that's all you that's all you saw that's yeah. the only th- time that you it saw it was a clue something yeah, to what there's a clue later. about him yeah. the other clue about him is that yeah I traded my medal for a bottle of wine so you yeah. know what he how he feels about the war yeah. Yeah. he is so point, done with it yeah. I was thinking he traded it for the lemon cake you know at the, at the start I thought it would be the lemon cake 
but then it's for wine. But you think like in the the the, the explosion inside, the guy who's who who gets saved is again it's Blake saving Schofield, right? Mm. But is that enough? Is that enough pay it forward for him to say? Instead of going I think back, that's also probably what lies in within the genius of unraveling more about him later, because it's like you think to yourself, he's a blank canvas at this point of time. Because we remove kind of the comic relief, more of the the lighthearted aspect, right? Then it's solely man on a mission, and it's like at any point of time, you see he's presented all these opportunities to just turn back. Like when he's in that lorry, he's like, you know what, fuck it, you know. But yeah. no. There is this inherent sense of duty that he does portray. Why does he do this? The easy answer to me would be like because he's a good man, because he's a good soldier. You know, I mean, like that in itself can already just answer all these questions, right? But also at the same time, right? There's something bigger. I mean, you know that this guy cares, and I think that's what's crucial about, uh, especially much later. When you see him finally reach that point, right, and he's like sitting with the guys, he's like, "We care about these guys too now because of you, because of what you went through." I mean, I'm gonna throw it up into the air right now because I would say, like, how about you, Dustin? What do you think would be like the reason why we kind of are left with a blank slate after the death of uh, Blake? Schofield, you get a sense of him more from what he doesn't say. Yep. And for Blake, it's kind of like she's just. Talking a mile a minute, even trying to fill in all the silences with the story about oh, do you hear how the guy lost his ear? He's providing the light-hearted tone when shit hasn't hit the fan yet, and he's the reason shit hits the fan. Mm. At this point, you kind of get used to the duo. You okay? He's the comic relief. He's the you know he's the Chris he's the Chris Rock to he's the foil. Yeah, yeah he's the foil, right? And like oh fuck, foil's dead. Foil's dead. Yeah. So we've only got the serious one left now. Right, shit, sit the fan. Yeah, and I was also say it's a great way to deflate expectations because when it when you start the film, you're like thinking to yourself like, oh, it's gonna be one of those jolly little adventure films, and it's like, oh no, it's real. <laughs> this shit is real. No, I think this is a message. This is not saving Private Ryan. Is it saving you, you, you're not gonna get the brother. You know that kind of thing. The dread actually seeps in when you see the color drain from his face. Literally, yes. oh yeah, he's got stabbed, then he'll like, he'll patch him up. It's like the, when the tunnel collapsed, right? Yeah, he'll just get better f- for some reason and they'll both carry on. Yeah. Then you see the color drain from his face and you see the effort where he tries to lift him like two or three times. The blood bandage completely soak out, he throws it, he puts another one on and like, that one's soaking up, that one's saturated as well. Like, oh shit, he's not gonna make it. He's not. And when he starts getting delirious, like, am I dying? Most other films like, no, you gotta keep going. But this is like, don't you die on me, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this is what makes it more real to life. Do you really want to bluff someone in his dying moments? Do you want to bullshit him through it? No, you're dying. I'm going to tell you you're dying so that I know what message to tell your family. And I think that's exactly what gets Schofield on, which is he has a new write mission. to my mother yeah. and give my things to my brother. So side quest. He's got a side quest to drive a little bit more. Hey, this was based on the video game. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> inspired by, I'm sorry, not inspired. based on. Yeah, inspired, yeah. But I, I, I guess I can see from that perspective, it, it helps, you know, improve his motivations. And I, I think, okay, the death of Blake ups the stakes because you know what? Now, when I saw that, I was like saying, now there's every chance that we may actually get to the brother and find a corpse. He may not even be a... They, because these guys could jolly well charge early. You, you got the guy who wants to fight. Yep. He may say, you know what, fuck it, let's go. We're going to win, right? Also, We're going to fight, we're going to win. I also love the fact that Colin Firth uh, making it even more video gamey. Oh yeah, here's a time limit. Two days. We got two days. We haven't invented the telegram yet. So That's right. We don't have enough pigeons. I'm sorry. We're going to send you two assholes. Now you're gonna send this asshole, you pick a friend. 
people might say it's coincidental. People might say it's just being you know lazy with the storytelling. Like what? Nobody's gonna send just two guys. And it's like no, why not? Why not send two guys? I mean, nobody knows how you know things operated back then. It's more like, hey, send send this guy. He's got a brother there. He'll be motivated. Yeah, the chances of that working out, right? Yeah, it's it's actually very possible. And you know what? I actually think that for the, for a film like this, there are very few coincidences. You know what I mean? Those little plot conveniences, like you see dead cows where there's a cow farm. You don't see dead horses there. Yeah. You see dead horses on the battlefield, but not everywhere. You see them where the cavalry types yeah. would have been. Like, Art direction. Yeah, the, the yeah. set direction is also immaculate. You know, and and the dead bodies on the logs. At the, again, I'm sorry. I'm gonna keep coming back to my this stream no, thing because, because I, I left such an indelible mark. It's such a yeah. It's like of course. At, when you have a log on a stream, dead shit collects there. So there were no convenient things. There was no like, you know, you see this in Schwarzenegger movies, right? He runs out of ammo, he runs somewhere, there happens to conveniently be a dead body with an AK-47 for him to pick up and then unload on everyone else. There was no nice AK-47 or any rifle for him to just pick up and use. Mm, yeah. No, 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 no. He don't get any of that. He got to run. I mean, also to that point, right, like, what I notice about watching this film, right, there is two opposing sine waves going at the same time. One is the constant reminder of war, and one is the constant reminder that this man is on a mission. Because, like, every time you see him relax, and then all the evidence of war starts to build up around him, like, especially that scene in the, the river where it's like, okay, he just survived one thing, he gets to lie down, relax, and float downstream, and then as he's floating downstream and then he's crawling on top of all these dead bodies, he's like, you always need to remind the audience, not just the character, is like, oh yeah, there's a war going on right now. And even like, you know, something as simple as like going to the French town and like seeing the building on fire is like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of pretty, you know? And then you kind of get, you know, lost in like... Yeah, he got mesmerized by it. I got mesmerized by it too. And then you see this figure come over and it's like... This silhouette start to appear. Then you're like, oh... Someone else And then the realization, right? And then they walk nearer because they don't know. Nobody knows. And then someone starts firing. You know, and then the thing is, right, then he alerts everybody. And it also uh like after he meets the French girl, he meets the baby, right? The baby. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, okay, we decompress again. Then like we're building up the scene behind him. Because right after that we finally see him kill a guy. That's right. Complementary to this point, each of these things are done with amazing audio design. Yeah. And amazing like Got them, yeah. the, the way they, they bring you back, right? It's like, oh, you're relaxing now, you've got a rest, you've you've managed to hide away. Yeah. Clock strikes six. Six o'clock, motherfucker, chop chop. Then he jumps into the river, he's like, okay, I can finally rest now, cling to the log. Cherry blossoms fall on your face. You're in the forest, motherfucker, get up. Yeah. yeah. And and again, the cherries calling back to Blake. You know, a little reminder of you have a mission, not just the mission side quest. I mean, like even the dialogue, right, with a French girl, very stay economical. Here, stay with me. So yeah. so economical, right? Because she knows what happens to men that go out there. Like the lieutenant at the start who gives the the, the flare gun, right? He he says, you know, throw it back, will you? Yeah. It means that they've lost quite a few. Yeah. It's a, it's it's what they don't say. It's a subtlety. The right? one line that he says that really like encapsulates everything. We fought for fucking inches. Now they give us miles. It's a trap. There you go. And, and, and then the French girl, you know, the baby, right? It's just, uh, who's, uh, whose baby is this? I, I, don't, I don't know. know. Just that, so economical, but it's all you need to know. I mean, speaking of economical, good thing he got all that milk, huh? Oh, yeah? <laughs> that, that was a convenience. That was the, the convenience for I me. I wouldn't say. I mean, there's a lot of Chekhov's guns in this film, but I think it's <laughs> kind of necessary. 
it's kind of necessary to I would say I mean it's building blocks of a bigger story okay. or I would say you know but because it's so lean and like it didn't catch me in a way that say for example in Once Upon a Time in America is like what's the point of this flamethrower again oh there right, it is right, again right, 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 right. you know like just seeing him like okay the water is dirty let's get milk from this cow and he doesn't get to drink it but then he finds a use for it yes. because like every good side quest <laughs> hold on to your shit you get XP later yes yes you know yes. he goes for I would say the one scene we can't wait to talk about when he finally hits that trench and he <laughs> finally okay guess what you had your epic odyssey remember the mission oh by the way that, that, the, that bunch of people you're protecting they're going over right now motherfucker okay where's the major oh he's not here He's on the other end of the trench. Of course he is. He could never be here, right? Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, and also at the same time, I think to myself, right, you know, of course he has to be at the other end of the trench. And what's the best part about this being done in one shot is that you're used to such huge battle scenes where you see, like, tons of extras wide shot. Then they cut you to the middle. And you're like, yeah, of course you got there that fast, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact of it is, you know that this is one shot. You know that you see the trench and you're going to see him fight through every single person to get there in real time. Yes. This is the drama that is added by the gimmick, yeah. which I don't even consider a gimmick anymore because no. this creates it's a tool. tension yeah. as a tool where you know that he actually has to fight through everything. You are not getting any shortcuts. You are, you're going to see him go through all of that, which then validates his decision to go over the trench because it's an easier way through. In most other films, you're like, that's so far-fetched. Why would he do that? Just walk through the trench lah. Why do you want to get shot? Because this is fucking cinema. But you have actually seen him fight his way through however many people. He's like, the only way I'm going to get there on time is to actually do this. And it actually justifies his very bombastic action of, I'm going to walk on the front line. Yeah, fuck this shit, right? No, I have a mission, right? And I would also say this, right? Kind of going back to my points on dynamics and the sine wave, right? You need that audience satisfaction. You need that catharsis. You need that moment where like, what is the point of all of this? Let me remind you. And it just hammers it all in. And it's like, you are following this guy to a, to a T and you're thinking to yourself, it's like, he's come this far. It's so close. It's in front of him. Let's throw the fucking bombs at him right now. And that shot, sirs, Jeez, like, I remember, like, just gripping my seat and just, like, reeling back and just, like, allowing... As the camera is, like, pulling back and then we're seeing, like, the full frame of all the chaos and all the action, watching all the extras go over and the explosions, which is not CG. Apparently, yeah, they let off some explosions and the actor hitting his marks because he has to, because he could die. <laughs> and he's just running for you. And again, the audio, the score that just kicks in at that point of moment, like, this is the last stretch. You're almost home. Uh, only to be greeted with the visage of uh, Mr. Benedict Cumberbatch. But also, you know, that one final, like, dig at you is like, huh? What orders? No, we're all going over right now. Wait, read the fucking letter. And you're right there with him, like, read the fucking letter, Doctor Strange. You don't know what the fuck he's been through to, send, yeah. to bring this to you. I have no idea. Who said... You, you want to scream as yeah. an audience member. You want to scream. And, and that's the immersion that has been afforded you because you've seen it through his eyes or over his shoulder this entire time. No, you've way. seen it through Deacon's eyes. That's why. His lens. And I would say, like, uh, 1917, just that the denouement of him walking off. First meeting, Edit stuck. Sorry, Tommen didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. But then also it's like, you know, just that lovely poignant moment of him exchanging items. And also like you, you always have to be reminded of his humanity. 
Like when he looks back at the brother and says like, he was a good man. He saved my life. Like giving the brother at least some sense of, not, I wouldn't say closure, but I would say, you know, it's like, yeah, uh, right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write home to your mom. Is that okay? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, just the idea that his brother didn't die for nothing. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, the brother's kind of been built up to be like, probably the, the baby of the right. family, yeah. the goof off, right? Just for him to tell him, hey, he saved my life. He was there with me, you know, and uh, he didn't make it. And then, oh God, the uh, glorious, beautiful shot of like that lone tree mm. amidst the horizon and just seeing him like finally rest. You know? and, and then like we, we breathe along with him and then you see his purpose. He just takes it out of his pocket and then it's like, I have somebody waiting for me. You know, if this is what it takes to get back to you, I will do it, you know. And it's like, and in your head, it doesn't answer the question per se. But it does remind you, it's like, yeah, like, you know, when it comes to purpose, I hate to say it, right? It's the triumph of the human will. You know, he willed himself to that point of time through all odds, ran across fucking no man's land, ran across freaking, uh, like, you know, the, the, the German covered, like the, the trench, German trench. And, and then like the, the, that whole city the, scene. The cut, cut his hand on barbed wire. Put, cut his, hand, put, put his, his hand in a put, corpse. Yeah. And it's like, basically, dude, he, this guy deserves a sit down. <laughs> it's not overtly sweeping. It's not overtly draggy. You know, everything moves at a very steady pace. And I wouldn't say nothing is rushed. Yeah. Because there are moments where it's like, breathe, relax. Especially it's like that scene with the sniper encounter. Mm. Where basically is like okay tension tension where is he? He's there. Whoops! Fuck. Okay, fire one shot. Get closer. Fire one shot. Go. As a CS guy, you yeah, probably yeah, yeah, felt yeah, like no, I was. Like, I know this situation right now, right? And he's behind this door, and then like he like. And the thing is, right? I love that moment where he just basically hypes himself. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Bang! He gets shot. And it's like oh okay, but he gets one off too. And then it's like the only fate to black. It's like oh. Everybody, everybody gets relaxed today. <laughs> yeah, just the one, right? Just the one, and it's like also. This is literally the only place, other than possibly falling to the river, where there's any time compression. Yeah, and basically, you know, but the thing is, they they keep the audio going. You can yeah. still hear, you know, the ambient, right? The first thing you hear when it comes back up is the water dripping on his face. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I remember this right about the trenches. He technically went through three trenches, right? Oh, fuck the trenches, sir. He went through his own trench. His own to trench. Get to the front the line. German trench. The German trench where the explosion happened, where the red set it off. Yeah, and then the 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 the, the, the new frontline trench, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here's here's why why I'm bring up this point is I was thinking like. So this guy is going to run in front of the front line, right? The audience needs to feel why does he have this change of heart to go in front, right? Mm. I mean, not, again, who the fuck does that? Yeah. But then we realize that actually there's been a lot of setup for this when earlier on, I think there weren't so many overhead trend shots or whatever when he's in his own trench. It was all like, like shoulder, you're eye inside, you're inside, inside the with trench. him, right? Yeah. And you see that without a hurry, it's already tough to fucking walk there yeah. without a hurry. When he's bitching, you know, the first 30 we seconds they're bitching to each early. other. Very early, right? Yep. But they, they, they reinforce, they reinforce, right? Yep. And then when there's no one around and they go in the German trench, that's also not exactly very easy to, 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 to do. Because it's dark, there's rats and there's apparently mines. Yeah. yeah. So then when he gets the last one and he try, he does try to do it the safe way like a few times. But it's gets properly bundled, justified already. Right? Yeah. But it's not... You know, a convenience. It's it's all been established. All good storytelling. 
yeah it's that's where i was like wow and then and then they do the the all the nice technical things you guys like from overhead and all that and then you see wait he's not just gonna go and have a little stroll like you know 100 meter dash and then you're done no they're going no, over now no, you know <laughs> they're going over now Okay, the whistle just went. Everybody's going over And everyone now. goes over and actually he bumps into an extra because an extra runs into him but he rolls and continues running. Somebody didn't come for rehearsal. <laughs> because because they tell them if we don't call cut, just keep running. Yeah. Because mm. these pyrotechnics cost money, sir. Mm-hmm. I heard they only had enough for like four tries? Something like that? I think so. Like you only allowed probably three at best. A fourth okay. one is if you can't afford it. Uh, Especially okay. with shots that, like that's this. A right? new, that's a new shooting day and that, that's a whole level, other level of budget. Right? And then you so wait for clouds it. and shit. And these uh, actors and extras aren't cheap, sir. Yes, yes, yes. You know, especially if you give them speaking roles. Ooh. That's it, yeah. Like, even the grips who had to kind of double in as extras, right? They got like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got extra money, right? For extras, yeah. For extra yeah. work. So like, well done. Is there anything else you want to add to the 1917 discussion, boys? Because I think I've said my fill, unless of course we want to kind of harp on the gimmick a little bit more because I think that is not even the reason to watch this film anyway. It's just well done. It's not even like, there's no one that's going around going, I'm a one-take film fan. Like, I watched Birdman. <laughs> this is the next one-take film. Those motherfuckers exist. Those motherfuckers exist. Okay, so yeah. then, yeah, this is the best one since Victoria or Time Code or Russian Ark. It's not quite as good as Russian Ark. Well, Russian Ark is the only one that's truly one-shot. And they got it on what the third take? On the third take, yeah, yeah. The entire movie is literally one shot. Okay, so so no magic. There's here. no there's no editing. No editing. There's no editing tricks. Pure they rehearsal. Even do it. They couldn't even do it on film because ain't nobody got a film can big enough for that. Oh god, that bad. That okay, bad. because like film canisters go up to like maybe half an hour, forty five minutes. Uh, like this is a, a two and a half hour movie. There isn't a film canister that exists for that. Ninety six minutes. It has two thousand extras and three orchestras. Wow. They go through the Hermitage Museum in Russia, in uh, St. Petersburg. Yeah, and imagine the nightmare of the sound design. Imagine the nightmare of laying down dolly tracks. Imagine the nightmare of like, if one guy misses his mark, it's a reset to one. Okay, I just got one question. W- was the gimmick, like, did it make sense? It did because it was... That was the intention. The, it was the, it was the oh. history of Russia. Oh, okay, then. then. And it's Tarkovsky, he does things like that. So here's the, the, the last crazy thought I had. And there was, was something you said earlier. Um, will we actually remember 1917, you know, well or, or as, as highly as we do now, right? Yeah. And it made me think of another film, Avatar. See, at the time, Avatar was like, everyone's like, you know, talking about it. It's the film you got to go it's see. The first I myself. True 3D experience. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I went IMAX three times. The only film I saw in IMAX more was Inception. Went back again. No, that movie you have to see in IMAX. I told my mom to go see. She was gripping the seat literally. Because, I mean, IMAX and and an amazing sound system, Inception is an experience. So not the small shitty IMAX. We're talking the big one, the good ones, right? With the good audio and everything. Dolby Atmos at least. That whole thing, yeah. And then, of course, the strategic seats. You, You know what I mean? Not the... Bleachers Center, or center. The center, center. Yeah, dead, yeah. Dead center, feel peripheral vision, motherfucker. Exactly. So, so I'm just saying, like, Avatar. The funny thing is, years on, you realize there's there's no memes, there's no callbacks to it. Really, no one really. It's run its course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's it's funny. I mean, then you think about it. You know. You know what? You realize that. Yeah. Plot wise, nothing very original. You know, characters, do you really get invested in this guy Navi. and his, you know what I mean? The Navi, Navi and all that. Like, okay, sure. Yeah. So, you know, like like Dunkirk, 
I can't get invested in any of the characters. Dunkirk to me is, I would say, a very well-made film and beautiful. that's all it is. It's beautiful, right? Yeah. Eye candy. Uh, I mean, pacing and all that. I have no complaints. For me, what I love about Dunkirk is the fact that they managed to have still shots of the dogfights. And I'm, to this day, I can't quite figure that out. Like, how did they do that? You know, without like, you know, plain rumble or whatever, right? But then again, Christopher Nolan, sure. He figured it out, you know. That's the thing about films is that it's not any one thing that makes them classics. They can be perfectly executed but not resonate with you or not stay with you like years past their Also at the same time, they can be totally nonsense garbage like Gremlins but I fucking love that movie. (laughs) Because they grab you emotionally and that's not something you can necessarily quantify. So I understand why you're wondering whether you feel that way about 1917 because 1917, what's key about it is how well it's executed but good execution is not the, the recipe for grabbing onto your heart. I mean, think of it this way along the lines of like, it's a very well-made burger, but it's still just a burger. Yeah. You know, it's not like some fine dining experience. Yeah. So for me, I would say like 1917 is fine dining experience executed perfectly. And I say perfectly, but I wouldn't say flawlessly because there are some flubs here and there. Mm. Uh, will I remember it in five years, ten years? Fuck yeah, because if you're a cinematography nerd and you just see those shots, those shots will forever ring with me as like, they did it. So this is like crack cocaine for you guys. Like we were talking about how Deakins is um, quite uh, up to date with technology. The rigs that he used with this are very interesting as well because he's using a the remote head called the Stable that, right? Eye. Yeah. He uses the remote head called Stable Eye. So he also uses the Airy Trinity. The Trinity, yeah. Which is a combination of Steadicam and Gimbal. Normally you have Gimbal which is electronic stabilization which yeah. um, looks a bit mechanical, looks a bit floaty. Uh, you have like the Steadicam which uses weights and balances. And what the Trinity does is it combines both and it allows you to go from low mode to high mode easily. So I would argue that this film might not even be possible without the Trinity. Yeah, I agree. The, the setups of going low to high and everything would have been very difficult without that. No, no, I mean, Ari has been... I mean, I, I used to think... This is Ari's first like foray, I think, into stabilization technology. I know, and... It, and the thing is, you get something like Deacons to supervise it and kind of like... And using the Airy LF as well. Like, the, using the LF, which is a smaller camera yeah. for large format. I mean, like, here's another thing about Airy. Like, Airy's been around for generations, right? I mean, like, so when you mentioned to me, like, the, the trench scenes, right? Like, some the parts of it, I felt like... Yeah, I mean, when I mentioned Kubrick worship, like, the entire introduction of the trench as the two characters are walking and talking, like, that's literally Paths of Glory right there. Because the one thing that I want to get super nerdy about, right, is that none of the 180 rule exists in here. Which is basically, we don't have two shots of two people talking. Everything happens in one frame. So it's always a single. It's never like, you know, cut to this guy talking, cut to this guy talking. So it's a lot like theater. Yeah, it's perfectly theater. But the thing is, right, you're the, the audience is you, is the camera. And we are moving that shit around, right? So when it comes to the Trinity and seeing that thing just very effortlessly like glide between shoulders in between people and then like the cameraman finds his mark and then the two guys start talking or when they're talking side by side and then or even when they're talking to each other and you don't notice it yeah and they have to design rigs for the cameraman so that the cameraman can face away from the actors and film over his shoulder like the monitor's on his chest so it's like basically he's filming blind yeah so he's filming blind so he can walk forward because it's a motherfucking trench so so he's like watching where he's walking while looking at the monitor while it shoots behind him 
Yeah, and in a perfect scenario, right, you have like some sort of plank system where the guy can walk on and it's perfectly like fine yeah, and level, yeah. right? No, it's a fucking trench. It's no, it's, it's real mud. Yeah. That's the thing. When I was... Okay, so this is me again because I don't know how any of this stuff is done, right? Yeah. When they're going through no man's land and I'm seeing all this mud and I'm just thinking to myself like... If I was holding something like really fucking heavy and expensive, I'm, <laughs> I'm on my face like every five minutes, every five seconds. Sorry, five seconds, right? Yep. And they're shooting like like it's a freaking stadium. I'm like, it's like I'm watching one of my CS players, you know, going through a map. No problem. It's, it's basically like I would say this is the perfect emulation of kill cam, where you can literally float you through the float action through, and you yeah, know where to stand if you want to see the best framing. Uh, deacons. But I think that a lot of it is actually in concert with like, okay, this is the blocking, the actors are walking here. Yeah. At what point are we looking at the front? At what point are we going to swivel around and, and look at the, them from the back? Yeah. Are we hiding scenery or something like that? Because when they get to the part just past the, the, the German trench when it blows up and they get to the house, they don't really show you the house until later when yeah. they when they swivel around because first you see them walking out of the forest mm. they say okay watch the ridge line right and then they swivel back then they reveal the house and the cherry blossoms yeah so there's a lot of stuff that they are choosing very deliberately i'm going to show you people because i want you to read their expressions this is the important part at this point we're going to a new area so i'm going to go behind them and i'm going to show you the setup for what's going to happen because next. this traditionally right when it comes to the single take right what we are all spoiled with is called the establishing shot where before we go to cia headquarters here's a sh- like a front yeah, shot right, of yeah, cia headquarters yeah, yeah. and like even for the lazy filmmaker it's cia headquarters jj abrams likes that yeah that shit you know but in this time in this film it's like basically the scenes don't end the scenes just blend into each other so as this maybe uh maybe a medium shot goes into a wide and the technology of the camera to be able to just swivel perfectly and then like oh by the way they're approaching that house over there and then we start walking towards this house and then like oh yeah as we're walking towards this house and we're talking to the guys notice that barn over there something's gonna happen there later it's basically like a fantastic magician like no there's nothing in my hands like but pay attention this is what's gonna happen now this is what's gonna happen now no i i actually like how they turned around the characters, they panned around the characters and so on because I didn't feel like throwing up despite how much the camera was moving. <laughs> because I, I've been through a few films like that where they try to, you know, give me that thing and I just go like, uh, you know, I, I don't even Done know what's it, going uh, on on yeah. the screen anymore. And But this one is like, no, because there could have been a temptation for a war film, that, bear in mind, Because right? you need to remember like, oh, it's, everything is chaotic and everything's over the top. Yeah, yeah. But no, no, Deacons is like, no, you, you can see, I'll show you, you know, I'll show you when I want to show you. And the thing about this is that so much of the, the, the horror of war in the first part is actually through art direction. Mm. Like you don't, you don't he, doesn't, he doesn't even come into contact, right? With an enemy fighter until the, the, bomb, the airplane crash. But before that, you already know all about the horrors of war because he's, he's stepping to the trench. Oh, you're stepping on the dead, right? All of that is, is ratcheting up slowly. You're stepping on the dead. He goes into no man's land. You're crawling, you're craw- crawling through dead bodies. You're, you're navigating. And, and all the burnt up trees. What you should have been a lush, beautiful countryside. You're seeing mud and burnt wood and barbed wire. You know, it's like if you like nature, you feel disgusted by seeing this. Also at the same time, just like the video game influence. Oh, here's the next level. <laughs> okay. Okay. There you go. I mean, like that. I I would I would say like uh, unlike other films where they they chapterize it, the background is changing. Everything is changing. The tone, the color, the music, uh, the ambiance, the atmosphere, the the emotions, the expressions is like 
everything is just choreographed so perfectly. And so when you ask me the question, will I remember 1917? Like, this is going to be a film, if anybody was to attempt a single take, right? No, this is the holy benchmark to me for this current era. Mm. Not to say of all time. Of all time, there are others. But I would say, okay, 1917 did it flawlessly. Your turn. All I'm saying is that film school lecturers will be using 1917 to yes. teach a lot of things. Also history school lecturers. That, that's for sure. Because of the accuracy of everything, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, but unfortunately, the French weren't involved enough. <laughs> <laughs> that does not, not, let's not do shoutouts to articles that are just garbage. So, uh, thank you so much for joining me on The Last King Podcast where we talk about 1917 on our road to the Oscars, okay? Roger Deakins, you are the man. I can't wait to do another episode all about just his work. Let me just give a shout-out to uh, my special guest here. Uh, Mr. Ruben, where can we find you again, sir? You can find me on Twitter, kidon0, that's K-I-D-O-N-0, or sparrowexchange.com, that's where I work. All right, okay, so this has been uh, your host, Shafiq. Dustin Luminoir on Twitter L-U-M-I-N-O-I-I-R Okay, and we are falling out